Kirby, the man who stopped the shooting at Sutherland Springs. Filmmaker Ken Burns and country legends Alabama. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Filbury. And now, here's Mike Huckabee! Well, welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a delightful group of people right here in our theater just outside of Nashville in Hendersonville. We are so happy to have them and happy to have you. And by the way, if you've not been here for one of our shows in person, it's about time you get yourself down here and come. You're gonna have a great time as these people will be able to tell you. Well, I don't know if you know this, but it took almost three years, but the Democrats in Congress finally voted on an impeachment inquiry. It's not an impeachment. And while they claim they will conduct their hearings in public and let the president present his side, that's not entirely true. In fact, it's entirely untrue. If they ultimately vote to impeach him, he will certainly have the right to call witnesses and present his case. But the next phase of this will continue this kangaroo court in a basement behind closed doors led by Captain Kangaroo himself, Adam the Schiff. Now, When the House voted to impeach President Nixon, it was a bipartisan act with over 400 members of Congress voting for it and only four people in the entire House of Representatives voting against it. Not one Republican voted for this farce and two Democrats actually voted against it. Several things you should remember about this highly charged attempt to overturn your vote in 2016. Number one, impeachment isn't removal. It's essentially a formal charge being filed. But unless the Democrats have shredded the entire Constitution, one is innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Being impeached means being formally accused, not being convicted. It would set up a trial in the U.S. Senate, who would become the jury. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court would preside at the trial, and the House would send designated members over to the Senate to present the supposed evidence. Now, it would take 67 senators, two-thirds, voting for a conviction to actually remove the president. Look, that's less likely to happen than for Adam Schiff to turn down an opportunity to do a TV interview, just so you know. <laughs> Number two, impeachment was intended to be a drastic last resort for truly egregious criminal acts. Literally, since President Trump was inaugurated, some have pushed for his impeachment on an imminent basis. I mean, it was an impeachment in search of a reason. It was first because he was morally unfit, then because of Russia. Remember Russia? Then it was obstruction of justice, then racism, and then because he was accused of using the presidency to gain financially. Now think about that one. He's the only president in my lifetime to pay for his own primary race, paid for most of his general election, and upon taking office has not taken one dime of his presidential salary. Instead, he donates every penny of it to charity. He was a billionaire before he became president. So only a complete loon would believe that he risked being removed from office because he thought he might make a few thousand bucks selling some hotel rooms. Number three, impeachment should never be used because one party doesn't like how an election turned out. Now, if you stood in line three or four hours to vote in November of 2016, the Democrats in the House think you're too stupid to wait another 12 months to vote for somebody else. They would have wasted as much of their political muscle as they have of your taxpayer money and time for a crime they can't even name. Number four. The executive and legislative branches are equal branches of government along with the judicial. We have three of them, all equal, right? Well, if the legislative branch can throw out the executive branch just like that, 
then can the president throw out the entire legislative branch? I mean, what do you think the reaction would be if President Trump announced that since Congress is incompetent and impotent, that he is disbanding them and he's going to refuse to pay them or turn on the utilities in their offices as part of the executive branch actions? Yeah. Okay, all right. Now, just like there was here, there would be some celebrating across America if he announced that. Even Republicans would be outraged by one branch not having any respect for the other. And it's my prediction that D.C. Democrats will find that even some fair-minded Democrats who live in the real America are going to be outraged by their heavy-handed and partisan actions so that President Trump won't have to throw them out after all. Why? Because I believe you will throw them out. Well, on November the 5th, 2017, a deranged gunman with a history of domestic violence stepped into a Baptist church in the tiny town of Sutherland Springs, Texas. Moments later, 26 people were dead, another 22 injured. Yet the casualties would have been far greater if not for the man who risked his own life and called out the shooter from the church and then shot him with his rifle. The mass killer was not a member of the NRA, but the hero who stopped him is. In fact, he teaches firearm safety for the NRA. He's an example of why we have the Second Amendment in our Constitution. I want you to please give a hero's welcome to Mr. Stephen Williford. Well, as you can see, they did, in fact, give you, Stephen, a well-deserved hero's welcome. On that day, what was it that, that happened and you said, I've got to take action? Because, I mean, a lot of people are amazed that you would spring into action as you did, knowing you were risking your life to do it. We all in the shooting world say, well, we would do something like this if it happened. And we all just kind of shrug it off thinking it never will. But you make that decision ahead of time and, and you understand what could happen. Uh, and uh, I think there's a lot of people out there, a lot of shooters and a lot of NRA members that would have done the same thing that I did that day. Every time there's a mass shooting, Stephen, the, the left goes berserk and they say, it's the NRA's fault. How many NRA members have been involved in mass shootings? To my knowledge, I am the only civilian member of the NRA that has been involved in a shooting. And look which side I was on. You were there to stop it, not to I create. I was there to stop it. After two years, there are people who, they're not physically recovered from their wounds. People maybe never emotionally recovered. There's some real needs, and, and you're out there trying to help identify some of those and, and let people know. Tell me about some of those. Well, first off, I'm trying to help Chris Workman um, build a handicap accessible home. Chris Workman is the uh, praise ministry leader of our church. Mm. He was shot in the back. He was the last man shot in the shooting. And uh, he was paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, Chris Every Sunday rolls his wheelchair out there and leads the praise band with a guitar and, and sings and stuff. And he's got a precious little daughter that's probably, Evie's probably five years old now. Uh, we have people like uh, uh, Zach Poston. Zach Poston was 17 years old. He was signed up, he was a senior in high school, signed up to be a Marine. Hmm. Hoorah. Uh, got shot seven times. Zach's grandmother crawled on top of him and sacrificed her own life to save Zach. Oh. Zach lived over it, but now he has plates and pins and screws holding himself together and he can't be a Marine anymore. Uh, and he's got over $250,000 worth of medical debt now and he's 18 years old. Stephen, back to the day of the shooting. When you saw him come out of that church and, and I'm, I'm sure it was a split second that you had to decide what to do. What went through your mind? Well, I think I was cheating that day. Hmm. 
I was barefoot. I ran across the street. I didn't take time to put shoes on. But uh, I believe I was being pushed across the street by the Holy Spirit. Mm. And he was shooting at me. And he hit the truck in front of me, hit the car behind me, hit the house behind me. And the Holy Spirit said, don't worry about those. Do what I sent you here to do. And I heard that voice. And, you know, people think, if you hear God's voice, you're crazy. Well, I, I guess I'm crazy. I, I want to point out that the weapon that you had and that you used to stop him was the weapon that some people would, as we say, like to get rid of, the AR-15. Had you not had enough rounds in the magazine uh, and, and you were limited to six shots, he would have probably uh, had the best of you. The police department said he had multiple guns and loaded magazines in his vehicle. I hit him a couple of times. He was still able to get into his vehicle. He shot through the window. Uh, I shot, returned one shot through his window, and, and, uh, and then he speeded off and he ran down the road. I shot one last shot through his back window, and uh, it went through the back window, penetrated the driver's side seat, and hit him just right of the left shoulder blade. Um, there's no telling where he would have gone. I, I, I believe he had made two trips in and out of the church already. Uh, I believe uh, the Holy Spirit called him out to, to meet me because I yelled out and he mm. came out at that point shooting at me. I think he was coming out, grab some more ammunition and go back in. Before I let you go, you have now decided you're running for county commissioner in Texas. I am. So that may be the most dangerous thing, Stephen, you've ever done. What motivated you to run for office in your community? Well, I'm at the age now where I can step away from my regular work and devote more to my community. And some people suggested that I might run for higher office. And I said, no, I, my community, my county, I want to start here at home. I want to make a difference at home. Well, one thing, there's no doubt you have made already a huge difference. There are people alive today because of you and others who will have at least uh, a life to tell about because your heroic action saved people in Sutherland Springs, Texas. We thank God for you, Stephen. You saved people's lives. Thank you, sir. Thank you. What an honor. I want to express my thanks to Stephen for being here and the gratitude of everyone here for what you did on that terrible day two years ago this very week. To learn more about Stephen Williford and his campaign for county commissioner, or maybe to book him to speak to your group or your community, visit stephenwilliford.com. It's on your screen. Also follow him on Twitter at goodgunguywill. Now, our very own good guy with the rest of the show, Keith Bilbrey, he's here to tell you what we have coming up next. I would love to. Coming up, America's filmmaker Ken Burns and country music superstars Alabama. And later, Nashville's breakout artist Tony Jackson sings right here on Huckabee. Well, right now, people across this great land are packing shoebox gifts to blessed children in need all over the world. And those Christmas shoeboxes are going to be shared along with the story of Jesus as to the reason for the season. Won't you help by packing a shoebox of your own or maybe giving a financial gift to help ship the shoeboxes all over the globe? Just go to Samaritan's Purse website or you can call the number on your screen. And we hope your holiday will be even brighter for sharing the love of Christ with a child. And Samaritan's Purse is still helping those who are impacted by hurricanes that hit across our country as well as the Bahamas. My own wife leaves this weekend. She's volunteering with Samaritan's Purse on a medical team in the hard-hit areas of the Bahamas. We support Samaritan's Purse with our money and my wife with her life. Well, my next guest is a master filmmaker as well as someone who brings history to life. His work is the highest viewed presentations on public television, whether it's his series on the Civil War, baseball, his incredible soul-stirring Vietnam War series, or his most recent work entitled Country Music. It's yet another masterpiece of American culture. Take a look. 
It's about the melody and the sound and the voice and the sincerity of it. From director Ken Burns. Country music is truth-telling. With everything, hillbilly, it's blues, it's jazz. You can dance to it, you can cry to it. The people who built this country, that's where country and blues come from. It has something in it for everybody. Country music comes from right in here. This heart and soul that we all have. Country Music, a film by Ken Burns, only on PBS. Please welcome the pride of Hampshire College and the number one documentary filmmaker in all of America, as well as in Walpole, New Hampshire, Mr. Ken Burns. Ken, thank you so much for being here. I am just absolutely amazed at this latest project, Country Music. You have captured uh, the genre in a way that has not been done. What got you interested in taking on country music? I'm interested in telling stories about the U.S., capital U, capital S, and I'm also interested in stories about us, the lower case plural, plural pronoun us, and we and our. And I can't think of a subject over 40 years and nearly 40 films that I've done that hits the U.S. and the us with the same intensity as country music. Maybe the Civil War series, uh, but I don't even know. The emotional complexity of these stories, the message of country music, the fact that it reflects who we are back at ourselves, it makes it an irresistible um, subject to try to tell, and we're so gratified by the response across the country to it uh, since its original broadcast is still being streamed on PBS. Were you a country fan prior to getting into the uh, documentary? You know, I'm a child of rhythm and blues and rock and roll. I knew this stuff. I worked in a record store in my teens and uh, before I went to college, so I, I knew Johnny Cash, who of course crossed over. I knew some of the bigger names, but I didn't know the history. And, and that's true of all the subjects I've taken on. Our corporate underwriter, Bank of America, had a little tagline connected with their promotion of the series, and it said, nothing connects the country like country. You know, and that's a wonderful line. We're in such divided times, and here's this music that doesn't ask you who you voted for, doesn't ask you where you live, doesn't ask you how much you made, doesn't ask you what your sex is. It just says, you know, when, when Hank Williams uh, writes, I'm so lonesome I could cry, there's nobody on the planet that doesn't know uh, what he's talking about. When Johnny Cash says, I still miss someone, we all understand what, that, what he's talking about. And I loved, and all of my work has been this. It's been for everybody. And, and country music is in many ways the stories of people who feel like their stories aren't being told. The people, black and white, who built America, who made it happen, male and female, young and old, across the country. And so when you celebrate that, you got an opportunity to re-remind us that there's too much pluribus and not enough unum, mm. and I'm in the business of unum. That's a quote that <laughs> Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Uh, said, you know, and the last episode is called Don't Get Above Your Raisin, which as you know is an old Southern phrase, don't get too big for your britches, mm -hmm. don't forget where you came from. And I, I think what's so good about country music, it has never gotten above its raisin, and it's always reminded us to be down to earth, to be authentic, to be ourselves, to tell the truth, to respect the others, to respect that, and when that happens, then, then there's nothing keeping in this um, amazing republic from doing anything. Tell me, what was the biggest surprise that you had about country music that when you finished the project, you looked back and said, wow, I would never have thought of that? I think it's that how central women were to this story, that the original American lead guitarist, his mother Maybelle Carter, she invented it, she started it all, and it, it goes down to the present. And you can talk to rockers today who learned how to play guitar playing Wildwood Flower by the Carter family, you know? <laughs> That's wonderful to me. The fact that the banjos from Africa, I didn't know that, and that all of the early pioneers of country music, um, Jimmy Rogers, uh, A.P. Carter of the Carter family, Bill Monroe of bluegrass fame, Hank Williams, the Hillbilly Shakespeare, Johnny Cash, The Man in Black, all ha had African-American uh, mentors. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, if I had to pick one thing, I just wasn't prepared for how moving this was. That this, this music, three chords and the truth, Harlan Howard said, right. meaning this is not complex classical stuff, but the truth part, it means that it is presenting to us universal human themes, the joy of birth, the sadness of death, the broken heart, uh, falling in love, falling out of love, missing somebody, all of it, seeking redemption, all of these things are part of our daily lives. And country music is 
is simple enough that you can hear the lyrics and it's speaking. All, all the musical forms are talking about it. You go to Aria, it's talking about, you know, the joy of birth and sadness of death and falling in love. Um, but I love the fact that this is a homegrown American art form, that, that, it, that, it, that it comes from us, and it reminds us that we've always been a mixture of things, that we've always been stronger because we're an alloy. And whenever anyone tells you, oh, we can only, if we just took this metal out, we'd be better, this would be truer American, it's just not true, it weakens that alloy. And I, I love the complexity of the country music story, even as it is, three chords and the truth, telling us stuff that, that, you know, I had a woman come up to me and said, that Eighth Avenue, eighth episode, I had um, I had four good cries, it's cheaper than therapy. And I said, yes, ma'am, it is. It's free on PBS. You know, it's, it's a remarkable series. I hope everyone in America, if they've not already seen it, they really should. Even if they're not country music fans, they may not think they are, they will That's be. That's right. People came up and said, well, I'm, I don't really know about country music or I don't like country music. And I said, I made this for you. I know the country music fans are going to watch and they're going to like it and they're going to probably have arguments. Why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you use that song? Or why isn't my guy here or, or that? And that's great to me. That's It's good to have that sort of conversation. But I want to bring people back to this authentic American music that reminds us why we agreed to cohere uh, in the first place. And I was just at a book signing and somebody came up with 30 books and 30 DVD sets, and I signed them all. He said, Christmas is done. Christmas shopping wow. is done. I, I would say I can't think of a better gift for anyone. There's this wonderful big book that's a part of it. I'm holding it up now, Ken Burns Country Music. It is available along with the, a complimenting book, as I just showed you, at shoppbs.org. Now, this is a film that is worth having in your collection. I'm absolutely promising you that. And I want you to be sure to visit kenburns.com. Learn a lot more about his documenting of America and the great filmmaking team that he works alongside. You can also follow him on Twitter at Ken Burns, and I hope you will. All right, Keith Bilbrey, I know you just saw many of your friends in country music. We're going to let you tell us what's coming up tonight from that great American music genre. Well, some more of my friends. There's country supergroup Alabama, not to mention the hotter than a pistol, Tony Jackson. But next, we have a very special guest from our nation's capital. So stay tuned for more Huckabee. Next week, Brian Kilmeade remembers Sam Houston and baseball all-star Barry Zito joins us. Well, I know some of you were surprised when I had a Democratic presidential candidate, John Delaney, on the show, but I welcome guests of all political views. Now, here's someone I bet you never thought you would see on Huckabee. I want you to welcome a man, and I'm telling you, he truly needs no introduction. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, and distinguished guests, I'd like to officially welcome you here tonight. Please join me in giving you all a big round of applause. Okay, that's enough, now back to me. <laughs> Folks, I'm honored to be here and humbled by Michelle's book sales. <laughs> you know, I almost wasn't able to make it here tonight. The family and I just returned from a nice, relaxing vacation in my home state, where I was born, Hawaii. Or, you know, as Donald Trump pronounces it, Kenya. <laughs> it was a fun trip. We're gathered here on this historic day, brought together by a common bond, that we were all born on our birthdays. <laughs> We've chosen hope over fear progress over discord, and paper over plastic. <laughs> Here we are just four days away from my favorite day of all time, Taco Tuesday. <laughs> he knows what I'm talking about. 
Now everybody wants to know what I've been up to since I left office. I've been spending a lot of time with my family and our dogs. Uh, you know, most people don't know that our dog Bo's full name is Bo Diddley. You see, uh, Bo comes from my initials. And Diddley represents the amount of support I've gotten from Fox News. <laughs> That wasn't a joke. <laughs> I've been catching up on my old golf game. I have a trick shot where I can hit the ball straight up as far as the eye can see, then it plummets right down in the hole. And I call it the stock market shot. <laughs> but critics say I haven't gotten anything done. But under my administration, unemployment was the lowest rate we've seen in over a decade. There was a boom in small businesses. And for the first time in history, 75% of the people in the United States made up three quarters of our domestic population. <laughs> That's right, do the math. I won the Nobel Peace Prize, took out bin Laden, and I helped the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. <laughs> Obamacare was doing so well, we expanded it for uninsured cats and dogs across the nation. The Affordable Pet Care Act was set up to cover all neutering costs for stray cats, stray dogs, and R. Kelly. Oh, that was a too soon. In our current economy, the federal interest rates are down, mortgage rates are up, and today, it's easier than ever for millennials to move back in with their folks. That's true. Now, before I go, let me say this. And let me be very, very clear. We remain the most prosperous, powerful, and influential country on Earth. Today, we find ourselves at the crossroads. Politics seem more divisive than ever before. But let us commit to living by the golden rule. Be our brothers and sisters keepers, and truly treat others as we would like to be treated. And may we continue to build more bridges to connect us than walls to separate us. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. Well, my many thanks to President Obama for being here with us and for showing off his unique sense of humor. Hey, after the show, if you hop on to Huckabee.tv, You'll find our In Case You Missed It segment chock full of funny news stories that'll make you uncomfortable and maybe even a little seasick. That's from seeing too much. Anyway, and there's a brand new Facts of the Matter after the show on Huckabee.tv. All right, I got to come clean. I know this is going to shock you, but that really wasn't Barack Obama. <laughs> Please welcome again Emmy Award-winning writer, comedic impressionist, actor, and speaker, Reggie Brown. You look and sound a whole like President Obama. Thank you. How did you first figure out that you could be a Barack Obama impersonator? Well, I'm from Chicago, so... Um... It's just, I know, it's crazy. And I think it's kind of a divine plan, you know, because um, all these little uh, similarities that we had kind of led me to this path. And when I was 21, my brother came home one day and he said, you look just like this guy, Barack, who plays basketball at the East Bank Club. Then it turned into that later that week, I was still waiting tables and a woman said, you look like my professor, Barack Obama, Google him. Then years later, he became senator. And then once we won the Emmy back in 2008 with NBC Chicago, um, my colleague Jim Grillo said, if you can nail this, you can develop the show, develop the makeup, and sell it to corporations and travel the world, and that's what I did. You know, it, it's, it's pretty fascinating, though. You've been able to make a, a really good career out of this, mm -hmm. but there's a message behind all of it. There is, and, you know, I don't think that I was given this platform um, and these opportunities just to make a quick buck. Um, it's really expanded my horizons traveling to all these different countries and meeting different people and different religions and cultures and things. And um, through that experience, I started up Outsmart Racism, which um, I'm funding now. I just finished the business plan, but I've had my life affected by racism uh, a couple times. I had my face broken in college and reconstructed um, in a hate crime. Uh, my stepdaughter, uh, we live in Sherman Oaks, California, 
and she was getting her yearbook signed, and I thought they'd still say, stay sweet, don't ever change all the stuff yeah. they said in our yearbooks, and someone drew swastikas all in there. Oh, you're wrote kidding. Some, you know, to a little girl? There. Yeah, uh, middle school. Oh, my so, soul. And to think that that's oh. in a melting pot like Sherman Oaks. There's so many different cultures and communities. So I took that uh, negativity, turned it positive, and now I'm creating an education program called Outsmart Racism because I think it is something that's taught and it's picked up through you know, just culture, you know, it happens, different parts. If you're not used to other people, you kind of build your perception possibly off media, movies, all these things. But when you actually get to know people, I mean, we're all the same deep down and people need to understand that and just love each other. You know, I think the, the essence of racism is a lack of understanding that if God made you and loves you and if God made me and loves me, then I have no right not to love you and accept you. I mean, how can I say, yeah, God made you, but I don't like you? When people go that route and they call me, you know, uh, you know, racially charged expletive, I just feel sorry for them because that's the only thing that they have to attack me with. They don't attack my character. They don't attack my actions. That's the only thing they can come with, and there's no basis beyond that. Are you still having fun doing all this? I love it, and it brought me back here, you know, and um, now I'm traveling, delivering my keynote. It's called How I Became President of the United States. I tell my life story, uh, tell my life story, the ups and downs and triumphs and tragedies, and um, it, it's great. So that's what I've been doing for the past three years and outsmart racism, and I became the brand ambassador for a company called Streamline. So things are going in the right direction. You're a busy guy. And you did endorse me for president. I have yes, you I saying did. that about 10 years ago, and I do have the video still. So maybe I'll make a run. Uh, well, you can see more clips of Reggie Brown. You can find his social media links you can hire him to speak to your group and learn more about his Outsmart Racism initiative at presidentialcomedy.com. Follow him on Twitter at I am Reggie Brown. Now, Keith Bilberry certainly may not be presidential, but he can still give you a good reason to stick around through the break. I'll be glad. Coming up, country music superstars Alabama. Then filmmaker Robert Orlando reveals how the Pope and Ronald Reagan brought down the Soviet Union. And later, country music's Tony Jackson sings on Huckabee. And welcome back. Now, last week, my illustrious companions, Keith Bilbrey and Trey Corley, showed up with some pretty outlandish costumes on our show. I don't know if you remember that, but look, in a weak moment, I dared them that I would give them a hundred bucks if they would have the guts to wear those outfits to church. <laughs> well, I'm here to report they call my bluff. And tonight, I got to pay up. So here are the pictures to prove they actually did it. This is our wonderful Keith Bilbrey appearing at his Methodist church in that hideous getup where he was abducted by an alien. And then here's Trey Corley as the Halloween taco. Now, Trey actually went on the stage of his church and dressed up like a taco. You see him there. I guess that's with your pastor, is it, Trey? Yeah. So I can't believe these guys actually did. So come on over here <laughs> because I have no choice. That's right. <clears throat> but as they say, it's all about the Benjamins. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this is my money. This ain't TBN's money. <laughs> this TBN said, you made the dare, you pay the bill. So there's your hundred bucks. And Keith, there's your hundred bucks. Get a marker. Yeah, you guys. <laughs> I'm happy to make contributions to your churches, <laughs> and I'm happy to be working with a couple of people who have absolutely no shame, no shame whatsoever. <laughs> Big hand to Keith and to Trey. Oh yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, a few weeks ago, I had the chance to head down to Alabama and spend a day with three fellows that go by that same name, Alabama. They worked hard to get to the top, and they worked even harder to stay there. They're not only the nicest guys you'll ever meet, but they're humble, kind, and they're just the greatest guys ever. I once got to play on stage with them, and I'm going to tell you it was one of the thrills of my life. 
They've been called the band that changed everything when it comes to country music. And their wall full of gold records plus 21 straight number one singles. Well, I'd say that's pretty good proof of that. I met up with them at the band's museum in their hometown of Fort Payne, Alabama. I'm guilty of love in the first degree. What a joy to be in Fort Payne, Alabama with you guys. Let's go all the way back. This is home for you. When was the first time the three of you played on stage together? In July 4th weekend, 1969, Sunday afternoon. That weekend, me and Teddy went by to visit with Jeff, and we knew he was like a distant cousin, and he had all kind of guitars and amplifiers. And I don't know if Teddy had a guitar or not. I, I didn't have one at the time. Uh -huh. And, but we sang a little bit, and I'd written this song called Jeannie Brown. Never heard of it, right? Yeah? No, I hadn't. Good. <laughs> One of the forgettable songs of Alabama, huh? One of the forgettables, but we thought it was something special. Jeff recorded it. But right after we, we started singing together, it was, it was special. Sometime during that time, we, went, we played in the canyon where the chairlift is, and that's the first time we played in this area. Now, we did a lot of other stuff at the VFWs and parties and stuff like that, but that's the first time. Jeff, you're a musician that plays fiddle, guitar, little keyboard. When did you start playing all this stuff? Well, I was 13, I think, when I was in my first band. Picked up keyboards. Didn't, didn't get the fiddle up till we went to Myrtle Beach, really. I just, while, while, while he was learning to fiddle in Myrtle Beach, we killed several cats over there, you know. Uh, <laughs> The screeching. That's <laughs> just plain mean, Teddy. Come on. <laughs> About the same time Jeff took up fiddle, I took up clarinet. No, but this, not, not a lot of people know about this. I didn't know that. Well, but I was so bad on clarinet, the, the band had, I think they hired somebody to break in my car and steal my clarinet about the second week. <laughs> it was in Myrtle Beach. So that kind of put a quick end to my clarinet playing. <laughs> Myrtle Beach was a big part of the Alabama story. Would it be fair to say that Myrtle Beach for you guys was kind of like Hamburg was for the Beatles? Yeah, I don't know what Hamburg was like to the Beatles. I know what the Myrtle Beach was to us, <laughs> which was like the toughest, hardest, amazingly difficult night, nights of playing music. It was like a proving grounds to see if you really made out of the right stuff, so to speak, for the months of the summer, mostly. In those early days, did you ever have to play behind chicken wire? I did, but I think I was by myself. <laughs> I figured, you know, some bands played those bars that were so bad back in the day that well, uh, they had to be Virginia. protected. Well, the thing, about the, the thing about the Bowery was is they had a set of waiters there that took care of us. We saw some bad stuff happen there. And one of the things that I think gets left out of that Bowery story is I'd take that poke of tips worrying about being robbed every night to my pickup truck and run, sprint, to get to it, afraid that somebody would kill me. It never did happen, but all those years, it was, it was pretty scary. Nobody, I think, will ever fill the legacy of Alabama because you guys transformed the whole genre of country music. I don't guess that was intentional, but it certainly did happen. We started out to make a living playing music. <laughs> that was our ultimate, yeah. wasn't it? That was our goal. It was like, so we didn't have to have regular jobs yeah. and we could play guitar and sing. We loved it. If that hadn't have panned out, what would Teddy Gentry be doing now? I don't know. I, I wouldn't have been as happy as I am now. I mean, all I want to do is just play in a band and, and, and uh, write songs and go in and record stuff and be part of uh, a band. And I couldn't be happier. And if I wasn't doing this, I wouldn't be as happy as I am right now. Randy? Well, let me answer that a different way. I thank God intended for me to do what I do. Mm. And the reason why I say that, there have been so many moments in my life that I could have done this is wrong done this and I've been done a lot of things wrong but I think he's had his hand on me mm. and I think he probably protected all of us. Jeff I know the last uh, few years you've been battling Parkinson's that's been a real challenge you still go out there when you can how tough has it been to not be at 100 percent 
and not be able to make it every single night out there. Well, it's one thing if you quit. It's another if you position to get jerked out from under you. Mm. And it's nobody's fault. God's got a reason, I guess. You know, I know one thing, Alabama fans love Jeff Cook and pray for you uh, every single day. No doubt about that. When I've seen you guys in concert, you still look like you're having fun. I mean, it doesn't look like you're just mailing it in. You go out there and give it all you got. The fans are going wild. Is that a surprise that just the durability of the band and the level of enthusiasm from the fans? That's we should sure have been in Salt Lake. <laughs> that was Was it all the shows we've yeah. done. Probably Saturday night, there's the wildest, most wonderful, sold-out, wonderful audience we've ever played. Salt to. Lake. Salt Lake City. What a great satisfaction feeling of knowing that, uh, that people still love our music at this point in our life. Well, I want to tell you, there are millions of fans across the world who are glad that God put Alabama together for the rest of us to enjoy. Well, those are three of the most talented fellows you're ever going to meet. I really do hope you will visit their museum in Fort Payne, Alabama. It is a lovely community and some great people there. And if you're an Alabama fan and if you're not, what's wrong with you? This is a fan's delight, I'm telling you. I encourage you to buy their music, support their shows. Everything you need to know about them is online at thealabamaband.com. Well, Keith Bilbrey, the announcer, has everything you need to know about what's next. So, Keith Bilbrey, take it away. Well, next, film director Robert Orlando and his story of President Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II. Plus, the smooth singing style of Tony Jackson, right here on Huckabee. On Wednesday, November the 6th, Fathom Events will present a one-night-only screening in theaters all across America of a fantastic new documentary called The Divine Plan, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and the dramatic end of the Cold War. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on Earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Pope John Paul II is a dagger aimed right at the throat of the Soviet Union. A desperate time. Other American presidents tried to figure out how to manage the Cold War. Wait, Reagan? Reagan wanted to win the Cold War. A world divided by superpowers. When a government abuses the rights of its own people, it is a grim indication of its willingness to commit violence against others. The real big battle of the 20th century was between the forces of good versus the forces of evil. Two boys raised during violent times who would become a president and a pope. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Well, he's an award-winning filmmaker, and he's brought together some of the world's top experts on the Cold War, presidential politics, and Catholic history to create this visionary new film called The Divine Plan, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and the dramatic end of the Cold War. Please welcome writer-director Robert Orlando. Robert, welcome. Thank you. Oh, Thank you for having me. Here. Glad to be here. This is an amazing story, and most people have never really heard the background. So the story is the extraordinary friendship and almost divine encounter. That's, I guess, why you call it the divine plan. Pope John Paul II and Ronald Reagan. How did they have this impact? 
well, changing they, the world. Yeah, they, both of them were almost assassinated within six weeks of one another so in 1981. And then a year later, in 1982, they met at the Vatican. And Ronald Reagan had admitted to John Paul II that he thought he had been spared for a higher purpose. Not that he didn't have a faith, but it was galvanized yeah. at that moment. And he called it the divine plan. And the Pope agreed that he also had a similar experience. That was the start of the relationship. Through the next few years, these men did have an impact on the world. And, and the famous speech that President Reagan gave, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Everyone around him said not to say that in the speech. But he was a former actor. So he knew the impact of language. He knew when he had a presence, he had a moment when to take it. And he knew all the way by commanding him that was moral clarity that needed to be verbalized in, in that moment. What do you wish people knew about Pope John Paul II that they're going to find out from the film, The Divine Plan? I didn't know that much about John Paul II until I did this film. Hmm. And then I said to myself, this is a transformative, like Apostle Paul level, transformative of the 20th century. George Weigel, his, uh, his biographer, who he picked, handpicked, um, said he lit a fuse in the 20th century that will go off in the 21st century. He was a moral philosopher, a Renaissance man. There were so many characteristics that you usually don't get in one person. So beyond the religious figure, there was all these other elements. He I mean, I think it's going to be one of those stories that it could be written as fiction and it would be spellbinding. Tom Clancy, right? But yeah, <laughs> really, literally like a Tom Clancy novel. But this is the way this really went down. So I think that's why the documentary becomes so important. I want every person to go see it, parents, grandparents, and especially millennials, Robert. Mm -hmm. You've done us a great service. I appreciate so much your bringing this to the theaters and to the screen. This is a must-see film by Robert Orlando, The Divine Plan, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and the dramatic end of the Cold War. In theaters, one night only, through Fathom Events, this Wednesday, November the 6th. Now, for clips and more information, and to buy tickets at a theater near you, visit thedivineplanmovie.com, and I hope you'll be there. Hey, Keith, if you'd tell us what's next, that would be divine. Well, coming up, country music's breakout artist, Tony Jackson, tributes the legendary Conway Woody right here on Huckabee. And welcome back to our show. Don't you love the music of Trey Corley and the Music City Connection? I mean, they're rocking the house here tonight. Well, my next guest released his self-titled album, Tony Jackson, with the help of some of the biggest names in all of country music. I mean, names you maybe have heard a few of these, like Vince Gill, Steve Cropper, Whispering Bill Anderson, and many, many more. Tony's music has been streamed online 67 million times. Times. I want to let that sink in. That's how popular he is becoming. He is an Asheville 2019 breakout artist who masterfully blends contemporary country with traditional. I want you to welcome one of Nashville's hottest upcoming stars, somebody we just have fallen in love with, Tony Jackson. Tony, welcome. Thanks for Thank having you me. For coming. One of the things I find fascinating about you is that before there was a musical Tony Jackson, you were a Marine. Yes, sir. So yes, sir. what did you learn in the Marines that are helping you in the music business? Well, I, I tell you, um, it was the best thing I ever did in my life. And hmm. uh, I grew up a kid of a Navy man. My dad was uh, 21 years in the Navy from the time I was born until about graduated high school. And uh, if he were here, I'm going I'm to beat him to this story. If he were here, he'd tell you. I decided to join the Marine Corps. I, I signed the papers, and I went home to tell him. And I said, uh, I'm done taking orders. I joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> Boy, were you in for yeah, one then, huh? This, 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 this wow. the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but I, I had a time in my life. I loved it. One of the things we're so excited about, one of the songs you're going to do with us here is uh, a song called It's Only Make Believe that was made famous by a guy named Conway Twitty. Do you realize, Tony, you will be singing that song first time that that song has been performed in this theater since Conway Twitty did it. Well, thanks for that pressure. <laughs> well, I wanted, to, I wanted you to, I feel like if you're a Marine, you can handle pressure. I, I'd have preferred a $100 bill. <laughs> <laughs> All right, as Tony and I get ready to perform, Keith, I want you to tell the folks at home how they can get more of Tony Jackson, because they're going to want to.
To get Tony's self-titled album, Tony Jackson, as well as his touring schedule, please go to TonyJacksonMusic.com and follow him on Facebook at Tony Jackson Country. And after the show, go to Huckabee.tv for an online exclusive performance of Tony singing Old Porch Swing. Now, here to perform Conway Twitty's number one hit song from 1958, It's Only Make Believe, here's Tony Jackson! People see us everywhere They think you really care But myself I can't deceive I know it's only make Come true, my. 